And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know, on many of our episodes, we bring on teachers to guide us through a process, whether it's personal discovery, maybe how to have a better relationship in your life, how to grow professionally, how to grow spiritually, how to grow in any area of life that you choose to focus on. Other times we bring on great musicians, but sometimes we just need to lighten the mood a little bit. And with the divisiveness politically, with the challenges we face culturally, with the adversity we face personally, sometimes you, friends, and sometimes I, John O'Leary, we just need to laugh. We just need to smile. And that might remind us that it is not easy, but there's reason for joy. There's reason for laughter. There's reason to believe that in spite of the background noise, that our best days are in front of us. One of the funniest guys currently out there in the marketplace right now is Sebastian Maniscalco. Now, when you, when you hear that name, you're probably thinking, where have I seen him before? Where have I seen that man perform? And maybe the better question is, where haven't you? In addition to playing clubs and arenas around the country and around the world, he's been on Comedy Central. He's been on Late Night with Craig Ferguson, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Uh, Jimmy Fallon, Conan, Stephen Colbert, you name the guys out there, the ladies out there at nighttime. He's been on their shows. He's had their audiences laughing. Why, though? What is it about this guy, this man, that is so intoxicated? What is this humor all about? Well, Sebastian draws from his own experience. A lot of the humor comes from his birthright. He's born to a very Sicilian father outside of Chicago. He had a most unusual and at some points a very hilarious upbringing. He talks about his wife. He talks about her family. He talks about their children. He talks about the journey forward. And as he talks about his life, what I've always found with Sebastian is I find myself reflecting on my life, on my dad or my mom or my aunt or uncle, uh, my spouse, her in-laws, everything else that we have in common. It seems to me Sometimes the more personal you share, the more universal the experience. So Sebastian's going to share some things during our conversation that are a bit personal. He's going to share some things that are a bit insightful. He's going to share some things that I think you'll find very comical, very funny. But I think at the end of the day, he's going to remind you that life is not always easy, but it is good. It is good. There is reason for joy. There is reason for unity. And there is reason to laugh through the adversity of the day, recognizing that our best days are in front of us. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on my friend. And after you hear his story and you hear his heart, I have a feeling he's going to be your friend as well. His name is Sebastian Maniscalco. Sebastian, brother, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's a rainy day in Los Angeles, and I thought this would be a perfect day to sit down and have a discussion. Let's dive right in. I know that you are a relatively new dad. You're doing the preschool thing. You're meeting new dads. And one of the questions dads love to ask dads is, uh, what do you do? You know, what do you, what do you do for a living, man? So I'm curious, Sebastian, when someone looks at you and they see your kid walking with a backpack on and they, they, then they see you and they say, Hey, Sebastian, what do you do for a living? What is your response? Uh, I say I'm a comedian. I mean, this is pre pandemic. Obviously I used to do drop off or pick up at my, my, uh, my kid's preschool. And I, I typically, uh, don't engage with, uh, a lot of people. I just, I'm, not Mr. Uh, life of the party, Mr. Outgoing. It's not that I don't like people. It's just that I'm kind of to myself, kind of a private guy. But if I do get asked, I do say I'm a comedian and, uh, and uh, wherever the conversation goes, it goes. The uh, expectation when you say you're a comedian and people think you're gonna <laughs> make them laugh, um, but uh, I'm only really, really my true self around people I really, really know and I'm really comfortable with. But yeah, it, I got a three and a half year old. I got a one and a half year old. I've been home now uh, for 280 some odd days. Generally, I was on the road um, touring and, and kind of bouncing in and out. So it's been a really, really big adjustment for me. Uh, and the silver lining here, by the way, I always, I'm a negative guy. Uh, I'm not Mr. Optimism. So, uh, so I'm always looking at the right negative of things and it's pretty much what propels my comedy. Um, but the silver lining here is I would have never got this type of time with my kids if this pandemic didn't happen. I'm trying to look at it through that lens yep. where I make breakfast every morning for these kids. I, uh, you know, playing games and, and going on walks and taking rides and, and, and doing all sorts of things. And I've established a bond with them that I don't think is ever going to be broken. But that being said, I mean, come on. I mean, how long, how long is this going to last? I mean, I, I, I need some like uh, variety in my life <laughs> and, uh, and my, and my uh, comedy doing stand-up is very therapeutic to me for me because uh, you know, I have all these thoughts in my head, which I think are, funny and if i don't get to release those thoughts uh it just it took a toll on me the first three or four months it was it was not good i was i was not in a good spot i think like everybody else just trying to adjust what am i going to do i had just bought a home um and you know it's like the, the worst time to buy a brand new house and then become unemployed now i do realize that there are people out there that can't feed their family that are getting uh, the restaurant's taken away. So I'm, I'm, I'm understanding of, of my plight in life is not at all bad. I'm just saying for me personally, not being able to do stand-up comedy and not earn a living, it was an adjustment. So there's a lot of questions around that. Normally I begin right at the very beginning, man. We go all the way back to the birth. It, we might get there in a moment, but since you're talking about the pandemic and 283 nights at home now and I think we're at 294. Like you, I used to be on the road all the time, man, all the time. And there were some massive challenges that grew out of uh, being at home now, almost 300 consecutive days and profound blessings. Like you said, connecting with your wife and connecting with your kids. How will this change your path going forward? Like, 
the, the man who used to look forward to hopping on the next flight and getting into the next club and the next arena, are you a little bit less uh, excited about filling up the dance card as you look into 2021, 2022 and beyond? No, I'm very excited to get back out there and do what I love to do. I'm chomping at the bit over here. It's something that uh, I need. It's something that I will go back into with a deeper appreciation. Sometimes you take for granted the fact that you're you're doing this for a living and you're you're making 3,000 people laugh a night and then it's taken away from you, then you know you really feel like you're, you're grateful that you have that opportunity. Will I travel as much? Um, you know, maybe I pumped the brakes a little bit, but I mean, it's nine months I've had off and I've never taken this amount of time. I've never even taken two weeks off of stand-up comedy, let alone nine months. I will definitely uh, make arrangements to take my family when I feel that uh, that it's appropriate to take them on the road. I mean, as you well know, I mean, if you know, I, I think you have kids as well, taking a family on the road, bouncing from city to city isn't the easiest thing to do. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think what this has taught me is family first. It's always been family first for me, but even more so now. I can't wait. I mean, I'm just looking for some good news. Keep reading. You may not be able to see it in the LA Times, but I think if you keep looking east, the good news is coming, man. So uh, hang on for it. And uh, I think if you look back, I, I always think there's a lot of strength that we can borrow from history. You have the strength of your father and mother to guide you forward. I'd love you to share a little bit about Sebastian. You know, you, we are the best and the worst of our parents. And you are certainly the best and the worst of this awesome guy. Uh, would you talk about your dad? My father uh, immigrated here from Sicily when he was 15 years old. Uh, he um, dropped out of high school when he was a sophomore to pursue a, a career in uh, uh, hair. He was, uh, he's a hairstylist. And, uh, you know, my father and my mother are kind of like the pillars of strength behind what I do. I mean, there's not a lot of people in my neck of the woods that left their home, went across the country, didn't know anybody and started a new life. You know, I joke about, you know, the only reason Italian moves out of the house is to move next door. I mean, <laughs> it's just the way it is in Chicago, Northwest suburbs, like a lot of people live on the same street. But I took a leap of faith and, uh, you know, they were, they were 110% behind me. You know, it's like, this is your dream, go ahead and, 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 and see what happens. So, uh, you know, I, and, I, and I think, you know, we were talking before about immigrants and, and how they work and, and their attitude. And I find it funny that my dad is 74, going on 75. His body is crippled from working, right? His shoulders, his shoulders screwed up. He's having sur uh, uh, surgery in January. His bicep fell off. Uh, it popped off in his, in his elbow. Uh, his back, his knee. And this guy is still doing die jobs. You got that generation who, who cannot sit still and have to go to work. And then you got, you know, this generation now which, you know, they think TikTok is a career, you know, just two different mindsets of like work and, and, and what it is to put your heart and soul into something. Of course, everybody's like making fun of the generation coming up, which is, which is easy to do. And I'm not saying all young people are, are lazy, but I'm just saying that 
you got a guy who can't, who's 75 years old, is going to work till he dies. And then you got some people out there that uh, don't do nothing. Yeah, he definitely is uh, an inspiration to me just because he came here to the United States with nothing, made a life, made a family, started a few businesses. And uh, thank God they're alive to see me and my family now uh, kind of enjoy the success that I've been having. Tell me where Sal met your mom, Rose. They met at a dance hall through two other people that they knew. And my father is just, you know, as a character. My, I don't talk a lot about my mom and my act, and she's always wondering, why am I not in here? My dad just <laughs> ask you that, man. <laughs> I always, I viewed it as more out of reverence. But t- tell me, why is that? Why, why don't you talk about your mother as, as much as your father? My father's just a character. I just find a lot of humor coming out of him. Um, my mother's a little, she's funny in her own right, a little quieter, a little bit more reserved. She's kind of like me in a way uh, in regards to the fact that, you know, private person, um, you know, there's funny things that happen, but my dad kind of monopolizes my act just because uh, there's a relatability there. Right. In the immigrant community that people kind of, tag on to. My mother was born here in the United States, so she doesn't have that like old school, old world upbringing, which I find funny in in many ways. But yeah, they met, uh, they divorced, um, I'm going to say maybe eight, nine years ago. So uh, late, later on in life, uh, they divorced. So you never really hear a lot from a, you know, a guy in his 40s dealing with his parents' divorce, uh, which Again, Italian family, you, you don't get divorced. You kind of just die unhappy. But uh, they uh, they went their separate ways. And my mother's out here in Los Angeles now for the last eight years. Uh, my sister's out here and she's got kids. So my mom wanted to be close to us. It's funny because I, I always thought that, you know, I looked at my, my parents' marriage as the kind of, oh, that's what I want. Because they were, they were always laughing. I, I, didn't knew there were, I didn't know there was any, like, issues uh, we grew up in a house where um, we were either laughing or crying, and there was no in between. Uh, and we all often masked bad situations with humor, whether it be a funeral or something tragic happened. Even now, I just I always try and find the funny in things. And sometimes it's, it's it might be a little bit inappropriate for people, uh, just because I might be laughing at something I shouldn't be laughing at. But uh, that's kind of how my mind works. And uh, if I turn it off, I feel like I kind of lose that creative juice. When you were a kid, grade school, middle school, high school, were you you the class clown? Were you the guy making everybody else crack up? No, I I actually despised the class clown. I I didn't like, uh, often in my head, I would would look at what he or she was doing and I would go, sit down, it's not funny. You know, it was, it was just, it seemed like it was forced and, I don't know. I, I never really cared for it. I was the shy kid that came to life when he had to do a book report in front of the class. So uh, sometimes I didn't read the book and, and the way I would win over the teacher and the class, I figured if I could make the class laugh, they would forget the fact that I didn't read <laughs> Finn. Yeah, I, I really shined when I got in front of people. My mother threw me into a modeling uh uh, thing they had at the mall where I did some modeling uh, to the tune of um, Eye of the Tiger from Rocky. 
and uh, I end up winning that, the, that because it was kind of like a funny dance. So if you got me in front of people, I was very, very uh, comfortable, but not so much in um, like kind of one-on-one and, and like so social settings. I was a little bit reserved and quiet. So about, oh man, about 20 years ago now, one of my best friends, we'll call him, we'll call him Patrick because that is his actual name, Patrick. He and I go to a stand-up club and we're both going to try improv and he goes first. And he failed so terribly that I walked out before he finished the act because I knew I was not going to follow that. You know, like it, it, it is way harder to be funny on command than it seems. So the, the, the very first time you go from reading the book report on a book you have not yet read to being in front of a live audience, what, tell me what happened. A lot of people, I've heard that same story that I've tried stand up or I've tried making people laugh and it's one of the hardest things to do. It's hard if you're not funny. If you're funny, it's, I'm not going to say easy because it takes time to develop your, your act. The first time I went on stage to do stand up comedy was at Northern Illinois University where I went to school and I bombed. I failed miserably. It was a primarily black audience and they were, they were yelling Sandman from uh, the Apollo theaters. They wanted me to get the hook. It was awful, but I knew I had an ability to tell stories in a funny way. Uh, and I just knew it was gonna be uh, a lot of practice, a lot of patience, and just a lot of repetition in order for me to develop a point of view on stage. So I knew that kind of going in, um, but uh, yeah, it takes a while. This is not something that you do uh, you know, two or three years and you're, you know, fantastic at it. Of course, there's outliers like an Eddie Murphy or a uh, Dave Chappelle who, you know, started at a young age and had some really, really quick success at it. But for me, it was more of a marathon, you know, learning the nuances of performing in front of a live audience, getting interrupted, getting heckled, uh, dealing with whatever might happen during a live show, and then gradually adjusting your act from like a comedy club to a theater, to an arena, uh, doing corporate gigs, doing whatever, whatever gig there is, there's like a nuance to it that you kind of have to learn. And then the timing too, you know, there's a lot of timing in comedy that seems to be forgotten. A lot of comedians today, I don't really see real good timing. It's a lot of yelling and, uh, and fast talking and, uh, no one really wants to relish in the silence. I grew up watching Johnny Carson, who I think was a master of, of just the pause and silence. And, and uh, that's what, what I try to, to do. And uh, along with having some physical attributes to my act that uh, where I act out the, the story rather than just say it. Was that part of the deal even in that first time on stage? Were you a, a physical comedian? And for those who have not seen you, man, if I was performing that you perform, I would be uh, profusely sweating six minutes into it. Like you're moving and grooving and up and down and it's a physical show, man. Was that part of your program even from the early days? No, it's not something that I did early on. Uh, I think what happened over the course of time doing stand-up comedy, you start to peel the layers off and you start to feel more comfortable on stage. And, and you be more, for me, I became more expressive. I, I became kind of who I, I, I really am. That's, that's the whole goal is to be your true self on stage. Uh, and I was discovering that when I did a quick movement with my hand or I, you know, contorted my body in a certain way, 
that it gave another element to the performance where people really uh, enjoyed it. I mean, nowadays too, and you know this from being a speaker, if people, you know, to hold people's attention nowadays, you gotta light your, oh. <laughs> Go with it. Oh my God. Oh my God, I was gonna say. I was gonna Sebastian, say, if you don't, if you don't finish that statement, you you missed <laughs> out, dude. You gotta so, land the jump. I, I, this is I, I've often said this. I said you you have to light yourself on fire to hold people's attention, and and I didn't mean that in any disrespect to you, but it just in, in case you're feeling like, oh gosh, I think I'm about to have this this interview hung up on. Uh, I have a book called On Fire. We have a, a a coach program called Ignite Your Life. So I think the whole idea of of setting yourself on fire with gasoline and matches is highly unwise. But the idea of being, man, lit for life and using metaphors and not taking it overly personally is really critically important for all of us. So you have not spoken out of turn at all. No, no, no. It's just something that I generally use. And it just, it just, um, I, I hope you don't take offense. That's not that's something for me on stage to hold people's attention for an hour and 15 minutes, you have to give them, in my my point of view, uh, something to hear and something to look at uh, because people are easily distracted. And I'm not saying the comedians that stand behind a microphone for an hour and 15 minutes, uh, you know, they're fantastic. I'm just saying for me, if I sat there for, for just behind a microphone, I feel like I would lose the audience. I feel like I gotta be kind of larger than life and then explaining my stories and doing voices and getting on the floor and jumping up and down. And, and I don't try to do it too much because I don't want to become like a, some type of circus act, but I right. think I do it in, in bursts where people go, Oh, you know, like I was surprised that he did that. Um, so, and I'm still learning, you know, it's just still a learning process for me. When did you realize that comedy was what you wanted to do for a living? I always kind of knew at a young age, I, 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 uh, I was in second grade, Mrs. Carlin was her name and my teacher, I think it was third grade, it's actually third grade. She went around the room and asked people what they wanted to do for, you know, you get the fireman, nurse, teacher. And I said, I want to be a comedian. And, you know, I got the laugh and I'm a comedian. I mean, no, pick something else. I go, no, I, I, I want to be a stand-up comedian because I was introduced to it at a really young age. Um, just fascinated looking at a comedian perform and and asking myself how does this guy remember all of this stuff and how does he or she make it sound like it's the first time totally they're, they're saying it you know because every time you go out there you can't be tired of what you are talking about the people will see right through it so you got to act like every night you go out there, this is the first time you're telling this story. And I'm sure you get sometimes, hey, tell that story about what? And then it's like, you got to get into it. You got to oh. get into it. Uh, and that's what that's what performance on stage is all about. And whether you're doing motivational speaking, whether you're doing stand-up comedy, you have to you know, relive that experience, that story, and 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 you could see it in the people's faces. You look out in the audience, and and I I'm sick where I'll look at the the guy who's not connected. <laughs> Three thousand people connecting with me, and I'm looking at the one guy who looks like he you know wants to walk out of the show, and I often point him out, and which which I find 
really cool in, in live performance where you could just kind of break that fourth wall, dive into the audience. Just, uh, I, I, was, I was talking to Seinfeld about this, like sometimes he is doing a bit, but then what he calls um, front of the house and in the back of the house, he's thinking about where he's going to go or another bit. I don't know if you've ever been on stage where you're, you're talking, but then you're all thinking where you're going to go. Uh, when I don't have the back of the house on, sometimes if I go in the back of the house, nothing's there. So I'll go into the crowd, do some crowd work and like stall. It's like a boxer holding on to get his breath back. I'll do that in the stand-up where I'll, I'll go, what's going on with you guy? And then <laughs> for me, it's more of a, a reset so I can figure out maybe where I'm going to go with my act after that. Yeah, it's there's so much nuances to live performance, but when you're in it and you're on and, and, and you're coming up with material that you didn't even, you know, you might have thought of, but never worked out. Uh, that, those are the moments you kind of relish. Um, sometimes when you're thinking too much, it doesn't come off as authentic. Well, man, sometimes when you don't think, you're also taking a risk that can get you in major trouble, in particular during the cancel culture we all live in, regardless of, you know, much of the comedy that we might be sharing could be conceived by some to be offensive. You know, it just sometimes you're you're always like tinkering and teetering toward offending somebody, whether it's your own father, your mother, your wife, your children, the guy in the back of the house or the guy in the first row. How cautious are you when you're ready to lay out a joke that you have? You know, here it comes. I hope it works. How cautious are you? Listen, I'm making fun of, like you just said, my family, my wife's family, myself, my wife, my wife, my mom, uh, my mom, my dad. I'm not really that cautious. However, I think people really appreciate comedians going uh, for for it, going. Like, uh, you know, Chappelle's been known to do this. Bill Burr has been known to do this, where they're, they're really kind of attacking this cancel culture in a way that's uh, pretty clever and fearless. I generally don't hit these topics. Uh, I'm generally talking about things that are close to me, my family, being a dad. I'm not like going out there and uh, doing a political humor, current events, civil unrest. I'm not, I'm not tackling any of this stuff. Black, white, Hispanic. I'm not, I'm not doing any of it. Um, not that I wouldn't, but uh, it just so happens what interests me. And I've often said this, like, oh, why don't they, people go, why don't you talk about politics or Trump? Trump's, you know, I, I go, whatever Trump's doing is not as funny as what my dad's doing. You know? <laughs> so uh, I'll stick to what I know and my family. It's unfortunate people tend uh, to not have a sense of humor about things um, and people for whatever reason nowadays are looking for something to complain about or I don't know if it's the internet now where people have an outlet to like complain or but I don't know I just I'm, I'm looking to show people a good time when I'm out there I'm not looking for anybody to walk away you move from Chicago out to Los Angeles into Hollywood. You're working at the Four Seasons, and the entire time you're you're stretching yourself to try to get in these clubs to try to make it. 
there's no, for the most part, there's no such thing as an overnight success. I and mean, it takes you almost a decade to really start in quotes, making it. What kept you going for that long? Well, uh, I came out here comedy or bust. It's like, I didn't have a backup plan. You know, some people go five years and if it doesn't work out, I'm going to go work for my father's uh, hair salon. That, that wasn't in the cards for me. I just knew this was where I was supposed to be. I knew I, I knew I was going to be a performer. I knew I was supposed to make people laugh. The goal when I came out here was to make a living doing stand-up comedy. That's it. I, I didn't want to do anything else than pay my rent, put food on the table by telling jokes. It just so happened that, you know, it went further than I could ever imagine, you know, with doing other, other things in the entertainment industry, movies and books and TV and what have you. But, you know, if I'm going to do something and I love doing it, I'm going to get up on stage five, six nights a week and, and maybe three or four uh, times in one night. Whoever was doing stand-up at the time, and I moved out here in 1998 from Chicago, and I was like, all right, you know, we're, you know I, I, I took a stand-up comedy class. And then from there, I was doing uh, open mic nights, laundry mats, a uh, uh, restaurant that had a crate in the Come corner. Come on, man, laundry mats. <laughs> Laundry. There's a laundromat out here that, that had stand-up comedy. So people were doing their laundry folding and, you know, you would be performing. You'd go to a restaurant, Italian restaurant, and in the corner there'd be like a, a milk crate and you'd go up and go, hey, what's going on, everybody? And people would be, you know, like, what? They didn't even know there was a show, you know? So you do all these things just for practice and uh, exposure more, more for practice than like, you're not looking to get discovered at uh, Anthony's Pizzeria in the corner of the room, but you're, you're doing all these things to, you know, kind of um, develop a foundation so you could build upon. And before you know it, you're seven, eight years in. And believe me, if I didn't see any progress, I would be the first to say, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. But I started to see, you know, Maybe to maybe year five, I got a late night talk show. Maybe year six, I got accepted to the Montreal Comedy Festival. Year seven, I got uh, a part in a small TV show. You know, whatever it was, I felt like that was the fuel to keep me going. Yes, were there times where you're like, my God, I, you know, I got an act. I know I'm funny. Why am I not working? How come I'm not in the clubs? How come I'm not you know, like you question why? If you got it, you're going to make it. It just could be five years, could be 10 years, 15 years. My mother said to me, you know, after five years, if you're not coming, if I would have left after five years, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Well, I'm glad you're talking to me right now. I'm curious, outside of your mother and father, when did you personally realize, man, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm doing this? Like, it's one thing to say I'm progressing. I got one talk show. I got one gig. I got the funny bone in St. Louis, man. I'm slowly making my way forward. At what point though, did you uh, hit the pillow that night and realize, dude, it's on. Like I, I am, I'm living my dream right now. You know, it's sickening. I, I never want to even say that I made it. I feel like there's always something that I'm trying to do. Now, have I said to like myself, wow, I, I'm doing well, yes. And I didn't really have a definition of, of making it. There was yeah. no like, preconceived notion of if I do Madison Square Garden, I've made it. 
Yes. I mean, I've become very successful at what I've done. If you want to look at the amount of people that are coming out to see me, but for me personally, as a comedian, I don't think yet I've hit my stride uh, yet. Um, I'm proud of what I've done up to this point, but I, I think there's funnier stuff that I could be coming up with. And in, 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 as long as that's there, I feel like that gives me the motivation to keep doing what I'm doing. And, and it's, it's, it's as good as the people feel laughing, I feel 10 times as good. They don't even know that. I mean, they're, they're dying laughing. And for me to look down and see somebody crying, laughing, makes me feel 10 times better than what they're feeling at that particular point. Of course, that's all internal and, and, and they don't see it, but man, it's, it's, it's nothing better than making a room full of strangers laugh uh, out of thoughts that you just think about driving around in your car or, right. you know, had an argument with my wife the other night that will end up in the act somewhere. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So if the word Beth steps into my act, at all. I need to run it by her 11 different times and have a lawyer look over the agreement before I can drop her name in, in front of one of my presentations. She really views our relationship as like private. It's not part of the deal, man. It's not part of the deal. Apparently your wife, your dad, your mother, your sister, your children have not signed that same contract. So I'm curious, before you share a story about your wife, since you brought her up, are you saying, hey, honey, you know that fight we had about uh, me wearing the wrong pair of pants? It's showing up tomorrow night on stage. Like, do you run this by her first or do you just come home and say, dude, it worked? I think my, my wife is a step ahead of me now and she goes, don't, don't, don't talk about it. <laughs> so she's actually telling me in the moment or after, don't, don't talk about that. I have a podcast and, and we talk about a lot of personal stuff on the yeah. podcast. She's like, don't, just don't, don't mention that. So, yeah, I mean, but she's really, really cool about, I mean, I, I rip her family to shreds. I mean, uh, I, I talk about them in a way where it's fun, it's uh, lighthearted, but, you know, there's only one joke that I had to actually check with my mother-in-law to see if it was okay because it was sensitive in the fact that it, it, uh, it, it revolved around her husband, my mother-in-law's husband, uh, his death his I went to go visit him at the cemetery. It was about my experience at the cemetery. And I had to make sure that that was okay just because, you know, it was, it was around her husband's death and, and I didn't want to like offend anybody. And again, I don't think the joke was offensive. It was just, I had to get in my, in my, just for me, I had to get permission. So the way you framed that was so painful. I know the joke you're talking about. I actually thought it was hilarious. It's a very funny joke. Uh, but anyone who hasn't heard that joke right now is thinking, what is, <laughs> what is wrong with this guy? How can he possibly find humor in this guy's death? And so now, dude, you just got to kind of tell them. So Sebastian, you're on right now, man. The spotlight is on you. What is the joke that you had to run off your mother-in-law before you brought it in front of the stage? And again, these aren't really, I don't like to even call them jokes. They're, yeah. they're life experiences that I'm sharing with people with my kind of spin on it. I went to go visit my wife's father who had passed away. I never met the man. We go to the cemetery. I noticed that there is his plot where she's buried. And then there's an empty plot for my mother-in-law. So they bought these plots prior to them dying. I'm sitting there thinking, 
my mother-in-law now has remarried. I, I forget how the beats of the joke go, but I turn to my wife and go, is, you, is your mother gonna get buried here or with the new husband? Because there's an empty plot here. We should, be, we should use this maybe for storage, a rake or a, put the Christmas tree here, whatever it is, it, you paid for it, is it gonna be used? That's kind of where my mind went on that. It has nothing to do with her father's death. It was just like, they bought the plot. Cause I come from a family, middle-class family. You're familiar from St. Louis. It's uh, you know, Northwest suburbs of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, nothing fancy growing up. Uh, my father was very like particular about money and what he spent his money on, not being wasteful. Even to this day, he'll come over and, you know, he's get upset if I call somebody to take a look at the washer and dryer. Like he wants me to fix it. He's like, why, why would you call someone when you can do it? I'm like, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of what my mindset is. And then when I saw the empty plot, I just kind of adapted that mindset to this situation. And when I told my, my mother-in-law, she was dying laughing about it. Uh, still hasn't given me an answer, but uh, uh, she, she was, she's great. I mean, she's so easy breezy and, and my wife is too, but there is something to be said about keeping some of those personal moments, you know, close to you and your family, not sharing everything that happens. But, you know, it's hard for a performer because you kind of draw from life and when you got a great nugget, my God, it's hard not to stay away from it. Uh, but I respect her wishes and uh, there's plenty of other material to, to mine. As, as a performer, as a guy who's always mining content, do you keep a journal with you? How do you, how do you track the stuff that you want to throw into your, your programs and your books later on? Well, pre-pandemic, I would go up on stage every night right here at the comedy store, record it all, listen to it and go back and tweak and add and subtract and what have you. Now, uh, my thoughts are generally... Uh, heard on my podcast, the Pete and Sebastian show, I kind of like put little, little kernels of uh, information out there uh, with Pete. If I, Pete laughs, I know I got something. So it's like a one man audience I got. Also my mother, I, I often like call my mom and, and uh, she's laughing at something I say, I go, yeah, maybe I'll put that in the act. So generally nothing's written. There's nothing that I sit there and sit at the desk and go, okay, maybe I'll say this. It's stories, like you tell your wife and kids, listen to what happened to me today. Guy came on, you know, yeah, there's no, nothing set up joke. There's no writing involved. It's, it's basically, I live the experience and then I regurgitate it in a way with uh, physicality, timing, and I don't know. It's just something that I don't, I don't know that could be taught. Earlier in our conversation, you, you name dropped somebody named Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, the highest, I know our mailman pretty well. I know, uh, I don't know. I know the guy at the ice cream shop by, by his first name and he knows me by my first name. That's about as high as the, the older you reach gets right now. You're dropping Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and everybody else. You've also said though, that making friends with these guys and becoming highly successful, as difficult as that journey was, you're even more concerned. You're even more scared about staying on top. Talk about that, man. So. As, as driven as you were while working at the Four Seasons for seven years, working the laundromats in, in Anthony's Pizza Shop, it seems like you're even more anxious right now about, about remaining there, remaining on top. Yeah, I mean, like when you're coming up, nobody knows who you are. You go up on stage, you got to win over the audience. You got really nothing to lose. 
you don't have a you don't have a fan base. You just have your jokes. Now you got a fan base. You're selling shows out. You're gonna come back in, 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 in whatever twelve to fifteen months to the same city. Yeah. And it's like, all right, did we sell out or was there five hundred less people? It's so unstable. That's why you got to keep pushing to write new material and come up with quality jokes that are better than maybe what you've done in the past. So people go, Oh, I got to come back. I got to see this guy again. Yeah. There's a pressure now to perform. Uh, not that there was no pressure before, but now it's like to maintain it is doubly as hard just because now you have the taste of success and what it is and you like it and you want to continue it. And I know what comes up is going to come down eventually. It's not like I'm going to be selling out uh, arenas the rest of my life. I'd be blessed if I did. I'm always leaning on the negative just because I don't want to be surprised uh, when it when something doesn't go right. It's out of fear. I know a lot of people, and I'm sure you talk to a lot of people. You might be one of these guys. I know you probably are that you're always thinking of positive. You, you have to think positive to, to, to come where you- You and I are the yin and yang, Sebastian. Yeah, I mean, you had to learn how to write <laughs> through the baseball autographs, which I found like, you know, at such a young age, you, you were driven to get that next baseball. And I mean, that takes a, like an attitude that like a lot of people do not possess. My motivation is just fear of failing. So I, I, I'm more like, uh, I got to write or I ain't going to eat. That's, that's where I'm at. I know people that think both ways. I would like to be like you positivity. It was inspirational, uh, to, to see you talking to the St. Louis baseball players and, and the relationship you had with Buck. And if I could ask one thing, because before we started, I, I needed to learn something. If Buck wasn't in your life with that, do you think your situation would have been different? I, mean, I don't know what your parents did or didn't do as far as like to get you to, to become the man you are today. But if you took the Buck out of the equation, could you tell me like, what's the outcome? Isn't that cool? So first of all, I feel like we just switched to the Pete and Sebastian podcast. So you've just turned into a different podcast, ladies and gentlemen, hang with us for a mo moment because we'll jump right back to the Live Inspired podcast. But, you know, most of our listeners know my story. They know I was burned. They know I recovered and they know that I'm profoundly grateful for the, all of those experiences and all of the people who showed up alongside of me, like my mom and dad, like my siblings, like the janitor and everybody else. Uh, and one of the greatest characters for my story, and I still can't, you know, I know you pinch yourself when you're at Madison Square Gardens. Like, what a joke. How did I get here? It's ridiculous. Well, the only guy who feels luckier than you is me. And I know I'm more blessed. I know I'm luckier than you are because I had all these people show up in my life when I did not deserve it. So you mentioned Buck, and I'll, I'll answer the question in a moment. But man, we, we were getting letters in Missouri, you know, flyover country, it says the coast from Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II. And people were planting trees in Israel back in 1987 for this little, in quotes, nobody. But for whatever reason, people took an interest in my story and, and in my family and in me. And one of the guys who took this interest was a guy named Jack Buck. And the fact that he shows up the day after I come into hospital 
he encourages me with those words, kid, you know, wake up, you're going to survive. Keep fighting. We'll have John O'Leary date the ballpark. And then he walks out, he starts crying. He's told by the doctors and nurses, I'm going to die. There's no reason for hope. So that's what he knows. But your, your dad comes from this generation. And so does Jack, this generation that just refuses to give in. Like he's just mm, show, you know, put the boots back on, go back to work. So the following day, this guy who, even though he'd never met me before, and even though he is told that I'm going to die, comes back on Monday morning and comes back on Tuesday morning and just keeps showing up in my life. And so your question is, would you have survived without Jack Buck? I think it's almost impossible to answer, but I think a strong reason why I did survive is Jack and is that vision. And I know the reason why I'm writing is because of Jack. And I know for a matter of fact that the reason I'm as generous with what I have today is because of Jack. Because what he, what he taught me in hospital was about like not dying. Don't, don't die, essentially. But what he really taught me in life is like, whatever you've got, it's just not for you. If you're really writing jokes only so you laugh, man, the joke's kind of on you. But, but when you're doing things to make others laugh, to bring joy to others, to make your wealth and your success about something bigger than yourself, which was all Jack Buck was about, that, that's when you live not a successful life, but a significant one. And the, the final thing I'll say about Jack Buck is this, when, when he passed away in 2002, the radio station here in St. Louis opened up the, the line for three hours worth of calls. So I, Sebastian, I don't know how many hours of, of people would call in for you or me when we die. But they gave the audience here three hours. Call in and tell us your Jack Buck story. It played uninterrupted for three days of people calling in from throughout St. Louis, throughout the Midwest and around the country of people sharing their stories about how one guy, just one radio personality directly impacted their life. And that's why I do what I do. Yeah, I wanna make people laugh. I wanna make them feel, I wanna make them cry. I wanna make them feel hope again for their lives. But I know, uh, I know something many people don't know. I'm mortal. I'm not coming out of this thing alive. And I want to make sure that I give away as much as I've received. And I, I got a long way to go. No, it's, it's interesting. And what it did was it inspired me to, uh, you know, sometimes I get messages from people, hey, I have a sick child or hey, lost a job or death in the family. Could you do a video? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and obviously I can't, you know, I'd spend my, my days just doing videos. But it made me pump the brakes and go, you know what, let's, let's do, let's do some more videos. You know, let's, let's not so much go, I can't do that one because I got the, because you don't know sometimes, that's why I asked the question, you don't know right. if you did something, a video for 20 seconds to somebody, if that would maybe ignite them and, and push them in a positive way. Uh, so yeah, that, that's when I, when, I, when I saw your story and I saw the relationship you had with him, I was like, oh, you know, wow, maybe, maybe I should be doing more. So uh, there was a, one of the guys we interviewed on the podcast is Mitch Album, and, and he wrote a, you know, Tuesdays with Maury's the big one, but he also wrote like five people you meet in heaven. And the whole premise of the book is like, when you die, you're going to meet these people that you did not even really recognize that you impacted. So yeah, you're going to be partying with your two kids and your wife and your dad and everyone else, no doubt. But you're going to meet these people who indirectly, you profoundly changed their life by doing something beautifully. And I, I think guys like you, man, you're in this position where you do a, a 30 second video for a kid or a guy between jobs or a woman going through a painful divorce or an, a fellow with an addiction. 
you don't know the impact that that 30 seconds might have on that person. And so I recognize the struggle we have as we grow in fame or whatever it might be status. But I just, I, I think guys like Jack Buck, what they model is the more we can say yes to people, the more we can profoundly elevate lives, including our own. Yeah. So, hey, listen, I know we are bumping up near the, the time that we've allotted together. And what I'm going to do is one, commit to uh, having another conversation with you soon. I'm looking forward to it, but also wrapping up with seven questions that we ask all of our guests. The, the first one is, man, what is the most impactful or the best book that you've ever read? You know, I, we talk about this on my podcast. I'm not a big book guy. I'm, I'm listening to seven books right now and I can't finish one. But the one book that I read recently that I really enjoyed and I found inspirational, I, I'm looking for inspirational books and motivational speakers. That's kind of like where, where I live. Uh, this Agassiz book, Open, I really enjoyed uh, reading his story. I like to read people's stories from like when they started their whatever it is, tennis, singing, what have you, and how that progresses throughout their entire life and how they maintain it and how they massage it and what have you. I do have a lot of books here. If they, I don't read them. <laughs> <laughs> the truth shall set you free. I think I learned that phrase sometime growing up, man. So I'm glad you're living into it. Send yeah. you a, a book to read or to listen to called Odd Fire. I hope it uh, brings you the inspiration you're longing for. Please do. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in North Chicagoland that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I wasn't so weary of people. Uh, and I wish I was a little bit more open to people not, not uh, making quick judgments. Um, my wife is extremely good at that, being a little bit more. See, I'm more black and white. I used to be a lot more like Technicolor, uh, but I guess as I grew older, I, I kind of like saw things in people that, I, you know, you just, you see patterns and whatnot. And sometimes you shut people off where it could be a really great relationship. And I learned that with one of my best friends actually, didn't like him when I met him in college. And if I would have tuned him out, I would have lost a really, really great friendship. Uh, I just wish I had a little bit more of that in today's world, a little bit more uh, openness to uh, meeting new and exciting people and not so kind of clo closed off. Not that I don't have friends and, and people in my life, but I could have more. That's awesome. Someone asked me today, what's my word for 2021? And my word is open. Like this year, dude, I just want to be like, I just want to be open to the experiences, to love, to life, to, to, to new beginnings. So I, I love the idea of returning to the openness we had when we were kids. If your home caught fire, man, we keep going back to fires, but here we come again. If your home caught fire and your bride, your animals, your two babies, everything's out safe and you have an opportunity to run back inside and grab one thing, one item that really matters to you. What's the one thing that you would, you would come racing back outside with? I'm not an item guy. I, I, I am more of an experienced guy. Like I, I don't buy a lot of items. And, you know, I have a few awards here that you know, I, I could take or leave, you know. There is a photo of my, and you know, it's funny, like 
if you would have asked this question 25 years ago, people probably would have said photo, but everything's up in the cloud. So if it, if the photo gets burned, you've just print out it. Right. <laughs> just print out it. Oh, <laughs> but uh, there is a photo of my wife and my daughter coming up on stage uh, in Toronto um, to take a photo with me in front of 20,000 people, which is just a special photo that I uh, that I really, really enjoy. But I mean, if I got my family out of here and, uh, and everybody's safe, I don't know, some cheese in the refrigerator? I'm Italian, I, maybe I go for the food. Right, the marshmallows and chocolate graham crackers and we're gonna just uh, have a party over here. What's the, what's the best advice you've ever received? Probably from my father. He just, he, he said, you know, you can't really pay attention to what other people are doing. The only control you have is what you're doing. You know, often in this business, you tend to look maybe at other people's success and go, come, I didn't get that or why am I not there? Yeah. And he just said, you know what? But there's nothing to do with you. The only thing you can control is writing your jokes performing and uh and as long as you concentrate on that i think uh i think it'll go far if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead who do you want to be hanging out with for a day uh, i wouldn't mind picking muhammad ali's brain um talking to him uh, i found that 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 man was not only inspirational but a hell of a sense of humor he was a very funny guy I like people who have stories about, like anytime I meet somebody, I'll say, or I go to a theater, I'll say, give me a story about this theater. Like what happened here? Yeah. Like, there's always something like in 1924, Charlie Chaplin fell out of that square the, the, where the star is on the, I just like people that share stories and uh, that are interesting. Like a lot of comedians, I was just talking, not, not name dropping, it just, just so happened to be Jay Leno. I did his show, his, his garage show. And he just, he goes, have you ever had a conversation where people just say, she said, and then I said, and then she said, I just like people who just come to life when they, when they tell a story. I assume Muhammad Ali would be that guy. Mm. Awesome. What would you tell your 20 year old self, this kid in, at NIU, man, getting ready to graduate? What advice would you give him? Don't worry so much you, you'll find your way even though you might not have a career path or a, a job coming out of college that uh, you have the ability to uh, work hard and once you find what your passion is you're going to uh, explode mm -hmm. uh, i was the type of kid my mother was like you got a hobby <laughs> i had no interests none comedy making people laugh I always loved doing, but never knew I could have this type of success just from making people laugh. It's crazy. Well, leads us to the final question. It has been said, Sebastian, that all great people, comedians, authors, fathers, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Uh, never gave up. That's kind of my mantra. I just, I never, I never gave up. I was always, always stuffing the pipe. Well, man, thank you for stuffing the pipe. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for spending an hour of your day with our family here at the Live Inspire community. Dude, you, you keep it so real. And what I love most about your performances outside of the humor and the content is the joy. Like I, I you said, John, I like people who have stories and come to life. I like people who have joy. 
And when you share your comedy, you, you radiate joy. And I think that's why the, the room is getting more and more crowded as you step onto the stage. So keep radiating that joy. And uh, thanks for not giving up. You got it, man. I appreciate you reaching out and uh, we'll talk sometime. Uh... Listeners, that is Sebastian Maniscalco. My name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big. And in the words of my friend, Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to keeleycompanies.com.